2: Taking it to a do it yourself
1: level. Good morning and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero Show. We're recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne and syndicated around the Australia Community Radio Network. And you can find our podcasts at bzde.org.au or at 3cr.org.au or whichever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter as well. My name's Laura and today I'm joined by my co host Michael. Morning, Michael. Good morning, Laura. So today we're going to deviate from our normal environmental uh, technology focus again, and we're going to delve into some of the broader political environment. So we're going to be speaking with Carl Fitzgerald, who is an economist specializing in resource allocation distortion created by the tax system. He's a literal thinker capable of innovative analysis to break through the blinkers of mainstream. Carl hosts another radio show called Renegade Economist, which is addressing the topics of monopolies and primary landlords, bankers and licensed monopolies. And so the show chronicles the dangers of monopoly capitalism, a risky trend encouraged by government policy in the hands of lobbyists. So a key piece of work by Carl is his report Total Resource Rent of Australia, which is quantifying the incredible worth of the earth and natural monopolies And another major piece of work is his documentary, Real Estate for Ransom. Carl is also the project director at Earthsharing, and he's also the leader of Prosper Australia, uh, non-government organisations inspired by economic justice. So today we'll be having a chat with Carl about land value assessment and how this can be used for public transport. Welcome, Carl.
2: Thanks, Laura, for that great introduction.
1: (laughs) Thanks for joining us. So we... We tend to start these interviews by getting an idea of how a guest became interested in environmental technology, so forth. In this case today, uh, can you give us a bit of a background on how you became interested in economic justice and quantifying the earth?
2: Certainly, certainly. Well, I I did my economics degree, and uh, after about the 2000s time of uh, being asked what I was studying, I said, look, I'm studying modern warfare. And all of a sudden, people listened to me. Because every time you say economics, people go, oh, God, I'm, I'm meant to go to sleep when I hear that word. I'm programmed to go to sleep. So, uh, yeah, I, I started thinking about this this element of, of this warfare, this financial, this economic warfare that this invisible hand sneaks into our wallet and steals all this money. And of course, that was in the early 90s. I went off and ran my own business for seven or eight years and uh, along that way, kept an eye on... Uh, the globalization movement attended some meetings for the um, World Economic Forum protests here in Melbourne, and involved you know, loosely in those sort of things. So, um, <coughs> yeah, that that was uh, interesting. But I knew there was something more than socialism. You know, there had to be another way. And after hounding everyone in the early days of emails with all sorts of um, ideas on the share market reform and things like that. Um, Yeah, a friend mentioned a a group uh, who are based in Hardware Lane and um, I walked into this big empty office uh, for Prosper Australia. So this group's celebrating its 125th annual dinner this year. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, we've been around a long time and it comes back to this concept of the commons and everyone having a right to a place on the earth. And um, if we refine that down, it's actually a right to the value of the earth. Mm -hmm. And so when everyone has a right to that value, it pulls away the profit-seeking mentality that big oil, big mining, and big property just make so much money out of. Mm. And so here in Australia, we have some of the best data in the world when it comes to our natural resources. We are just so privileged to be able to tell people how incredibly valuable our land is know, government set up to govern the land you know to maintain supposed sovereignty (coughs) sorry our Wurundjeri people here uh, (laughs) in uh, Fitzroy but um, yeah it's that sort of mentality that that drives governments is being able to govern their land but so few of them believe it's impossible to value your land and quite you know it's it's the science but it's quite easy to value your land but of course the 0.01 percent don't want anyone to know how much easy money they're making buying and selling the earth
1: Mm. can you delve into what prosper does a little bit more like yeah sure about where they're at and what they're up to so
2: we are tax geeks essentially we see that the tax system is a proactive mechanism to shield the productive community from these rent seekers who are coming in to make this easy money through buying access to politicians and, you know, finding out where the new train line is going to be built. Mm. And being there, you know, three, five years before it's actually announced, um, having purchased that land and they just sit on it and wait for what we call the golden pen tick so that rezoning comes through and all of a sudden you know we're not just talking hundreds of thousands we're talking multi-million dollar windfall gains just from a tick of a pen. so our job is to quantify those values and show that not only the value of land but the value of mining in oil in the electromagnetic spectrum fisheries goddamn forestry um, right through to other areas of natural monopoly um, down to the privatization of our DNA um, to uh, licensing rights copyrights those patenting goddamn patents so uh, all of those things add up to billions and billions of dollars and here we have um, a government saying look we've got a huge um budget deficit we've got all these problems we've got to cut back spending and we're saying well hang on a minute let's look at where all the easy money is all of these tax reviews come out saying look the easiest way we could raise revenue um, is through this thing called land Mm. land Mm. tax and so last year the value of australian um land increased by 540 billion dollars 525 billion dollars <laughs> 340 billion dollars the year before mm-hmm. and here we are struggling for some 40 50 billion dollars a year
1: right so it's based around sort of public expenditure leading to these really incredible private gains essentially
2: yeah well they don't even have to build new infrastructure nearby yeah. Um, it's just a process over time that as the population naturally increases and as the community develops, the competition for those prime locations will um, increase. So, you know, whilst the land increased 540, uh, 525, now I've got it my head wrong, <laughs> um, uh, we need about <coughs> that much money each year to run all three levels of government.
1: Mm. Well. Before we get into land value capture and BZE's high-speed rail report, I wanted to discuss your report, Total Resource Rents of Australia. Just briefly, can you give us an overview of the report and and what did you set out to find when you started it?
2: Yeah, well, building on what we've just said, um, it's this rare ability and there's only a few economists around the world who have done this before and that is to show that all of these natural monopolies are actually substantial enough economically to fund government because mm. that's what we're saying look these monopolists they should be paying for government not us workers so um because of poor statistics around the world uh, this is extremely rare and this report went through all of those monopolies I just sort of um, talked about from land through to dna and quantified how great a value they were and when you look at the economics textbooks it says look forget all this stuff this what we call economic rent, which um, some might have heard of as resource rents um, or unearned income. They're sort of the three terms that uh, are used technically in economics. Uh, They say, look, don't even bother looking at it. It's only worth one to two percent of GDP. It's nothing. It's inconsequential. That's an old story. It's not even worth looking at. And whatever you do, don't even bother modeling it. And of course, when I counted it all up, the value of Um, all of these natural monopolies was worth 23.6% of GDP. Mm. So it was massive. Mm -hmm. And the amount of tax we need is around about 25%. So basically we could cover all of the taxes we have and say to the corporates, look, we'll even give you a zero company tax rate. And people out there are probably screaming, going, what? How's that on 3CR? (laughs) Well, um, the issue is... That So many of them are dodging their taxes like it's some sort of sport, and the ones who are really making the big bucks are the ones who have these monopoly rights, and they're the ones we should target. And that's what all these tax reviews are telling us. You know, we, Post-GFC, we had the Henry Tax Review. Mm-hmm. In New Zealand, they had the Working Tax Group. Um, paper and in the UK they had the Merlees report and these were three the three major government investigations into why the GFC happened and what we can do to future proof the system they all said look tax evasion is going to keep going on we need to look at the most efficient resource base and something that can help with diverse things such as refugees through to climate through to the need to actually decentralize there's all sorts of environmental dividends that come from this this form of taxation so um that was you know a really powerful thing to see those three tax reviews but we still haven't had any modeling um to prove how good it could be so last i think october malcolm turnbull announced a world first that they're actually going to model what would happen if we channeled some of this property bubble away from the banks and towards funding government
0: has he actually started doing that he has yeah So it's exciting. So in your own words, you said there's only a few um, economists in the world taking this view. What are your fundamental challenges in getting this up? How would you go about it (laughs) besides talking on 3CR? Yes,
2: yeah, well, goodness me, I wish I had a team of really switched on campaigners. I mean, that's been the exciting thing, seeing um, now this great Change in tenor with uh, the move towards negative gearing reform is that the left have this um, social change theory um, quite well orchestrated and how to press those buttons uh, for the community and and this has almost been a decentralised campaign so many people working little bits on it and it's led to this crescendo we're seeing now so. Yeah, that's certainly one thing. But the biggest challenge, of course, is this economic literacy and how willing people are to fall asleep when they hear that term <laughs> economics.
1: It's <is> very dense. <laughs> yeah.
0: So your report, just quoting a bit from it, it says in two eleven twelve, 12 local, state and federal governments required just under $400 billion in operating revenue. And you say, you argue the most efficient form of government revenue raising is the taxation of economic rents, which could raise 87% of that, so 350 odd billion of the revenue needed and adding in a few, what you call sin taxes and non-taxation revenue a fairer, more equitable tax base as possible. So can you expand on how these uh, monopoly rents could be implemented to have the capacity to finance government and in particular for um, our sustainability, Ben, how that would apply to the coal industry?
2: Ooh, the coal industry. Well, certainly that would pay the sort of a minerals resource rent tax um, it's as simple as that basically yeah without the extravagant depreciation write-offs that got snuck in there by um, bhp and Extrater and so forth so that's you know obviously prior to place there'd be significant environmental bonds included in that as well so uh yeah th- that would tax away the profits there and with the falling cost of solar it would really put the squeeze on coal mining and coal generation power so uh, there wouldn't be this capacity to pass the prices on because we have this global commodity um, market and if someone's trying to pass it on everyone will buy from the other market so Mm -hmm. that's pretty much how how uh, resource rent taxation works
0: and at the other levels of government at the municipal level and so on how do they implement it there well, we already
2: have it there with our council rating system. And one of the problems we've got is after 30 years of privatization, it's taking, it's costing some $2,000 um, to to empty one drain in my city of Maribyrnong. Um, so I'm looking for listeners out there. Have you got any extraordinary stories in your community of extensive consultancy fees? $2,000 to empty one drain. We've got Serco running the parks and gardens here for melbourne city council god knows how much they're charging them Mm. but it's those sort of you know extra that gravy that's put on top of the system through these middlemen that's pushing our rates up so we need to look at that side of things as well so the one thing just to add at the local level is at the moment when you put a solar panel on your roof your rates go up and mm-hmm. if you have a property investor and you've got a rickety old weatherboard home that could well be the bedrock of, of affordable housing in your community, there's an incentive to smash that down and leave it empty. So we've got to switch the council rates off the land and improvements to just the land itself with site value rating.
1: For those of you that have just joined us, um, you're listening to the Beyond Zero Show. And we're here today with Carl Fitzgerald, the Project Director of Earth Sharing and Prosper Australia. And we're discussing Carl's work on land value assessment and how this can be used to public transport.
0: And as Laura said, it is Beyond Zero Show. And the essence of Beyond Zero is the half dozen reports they've prepared on how we can convert Australia to a, um, a zero emissions and then beyond that, a drawdown economy. One of those reports is, as we foreshadowed at the start, the high-speed rail network. Zero Carbon Australia High-Speed Rail Report, if I could just summarise a few points for those who haven't had time to read it, says that 45% of Australian regional travel is contained within the proposed high-speed rail network corridor, we're talking about Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane. Um, There'd be 21 high-speed rail stations connecting 11 regional centres and 7 major cities. There'd be 10-minute train frequencies required during peak hours at Sydney Station. Journey times of less than three hours from the centre of Sydney CBD to the CBD of Melbourne or Brisbane. That's three hours centre to centre. So think about your normal time of getting out to the airport and getting the plane and then getting back in. 60% of the Australian population within 50 kilometres of a high-speed rail station on the proposed network. 3 million fewer domestic passengers at Sydney Airport in 2030 than current levels, not than projected levels. The high-speed rail becomes the dominant mode of transport for journeys between 350 and 1300 kilometres in length. Um, over three times more passengers are expected to travel by high-speed rail than air on the East Coast Corridor by 2030. 100% renewable energy-powered high-speed rail, allowing zero-emission journeys. The cost... Um, wait for it! Are you, are you, are you, all these good things is estimated eighty four billion. That's broken down into roughly forty billion for the Melbourne Sydney Link and forty four billion for the Sydney Brisbane Link, and that's including contingency and so on. Seven billion estimated fare revenue um, when fully operational in twenty thirty. An operating profit of four point six billion, a forty year capital payback. So a really really exciting project and one that Australia just has been so slow to learn from the high-speed rail for equivalent um, high-density routes overseas. So what we'd like to spend the rest of the show with you, Carl, is is discussing how we can use um, what you term land value capture um, and those concepts to fund this um, high-speed rail project. Yes, well, it's
2: something that we've been pushing for generations, essentially, and uh, it was how we used to fund our train line. So um, the extension from, I think it was East Malvern Station on the Glen Waverley line through to Glen Waverley Station uh, happened in the early 1920s. And uh, through that period, uh, landowners um, uh, voluntarily donated their land to, to build the, uh, the extension through that area and then committed to paying a yearly fee based on their land values. Back they donated to, their land. Yep, yeah. and then they had to pay um, a yearly fee back to government based on the value of their land. And so uh, it, this essentially goes to a system of instead of user pays, we're talking about beneficiary pays. And we don't hit that landowner up for their portion of the, the project cost in one go. We spread it over 20, 30 years. And that is one of the key differences that our so-called developer contributions we have here in Melbourne and up in Sydney, it's costing some $100,000 per property that they're throwing up front on the project. And uh, that then means the person buying the home has $100,000 extra to pay interest on. Mm -hmm. So that ends up being, you know, 220 grand in in extra interest costs because of this poor failure to understand how economically we could do this at least cost. So the exciting thing is that land value capture is now uh, widely discussed in policy circles. It was uh, part of Infrastructure Australia's um, 15-year plan released this week. People like Lucy Turnbull are strong proponents of it. Professor Peter Newman from Curtin University, who I first told about this concept about 15 years ago, he's now the guy Malcolm Turnbull calls up to us for advice on. So it, it's something that is happening um, in policy circles and it's, it's pl- coming into play around the world. So in the West, it's pretty much a bit of a, a myth, an urban myth that you just can't make public transport profitable. But the company that runs Melbourne's train lines, MTR, Um, is based out of hong kong and they have paid dividends to their shareholders for the last 14 years in a row by utilizing this power of location location and the competition for that location to take a portion of that land rent and put it to good use to fund to say thanks for this new public infrastructure
0: Mm. so as i'm understanding it wherever this infrastructure is built you get a a concomitant uplift in value of the prices. So we're talking about, in the case of the the high-speed rail, right up and down the east-west coast, uh, Brisbane to Melbourne. How would that be implemented? So is it cities paying an increased value? Is it individual plots of land beside the railway line near railway stations?
2: Yeah, it would be down to the the individual landholder. So basically, because we do yearly land valuations and because we have things now like Google Earth and all sorts of geospatial analysis, this is just becoming so easy now. It could be very transparent that uh, we we have these land valuations. We see, wow, before the train line was announced, our land was worth $400,000. It's been announced, wow, it's worth now $900,000 gee, what have I done? Nothing. Okay, well, let's pay a little bit of that up kick back uh, to the government over the next 30 years. And there was
0: what sort of percentage, what
2: sort of percentage? Well, it would be around about some, it's hard to tell, but it would be somewhere around about uh, three to 5%, something like that over time
0: so yeah i had a three to five percent sorry to interrupt you but three to five percent of that total uplift value per year or in total or what per year Mm
2: -hmm. so yeah it depends because there's different ways you can do the funding mix but that would be the best case scenario Mm -hmm. but you certainly if you have a mix of um, user fees you have the land value capture component they they are the two um, best options and We could have a system where we've got all these superannuation ethical super companies uh, who are doing remarkably well compared to the industry super funds. And they could buy this securitized bonds. So we could um, basically securitize these revenue flows and say, look, we're gonna be receiving $240 billion in rent each year through this rising value of land. And that would go to pay off these bonds that have been And there's lots of bought.
0: successful examples of that, I understand, One understand from Yeah,
2: one of the most prominent ones is the number seven train line extension in New York to the Hudson Yards. And they did the numbers and said, look, if we can build this new train line extension, it will lead to all this at a density. And from that, uh, we will have all these new landowners in the area, property um, title owners, and they're combined property taxes over the next 30 years will bring in some 30 billion dollars now the mm-hmm. cost of that train line was only 2.4 billion dollars <laughs> okay so that's how powerful it is and you i think i saw on that high speed rail um a proposal of yours that the total cost was some 84 billion dollars yep, correct so um we look at australia's land value at 4.1 trillion dollars Around about 60% of the population lives within 50 kilometres of that. So we can approximate that about $2.5 trillion worth of land would be affected. And from that, somewhere uh, around about 5 to 10%, you'd easily pull in $200 billion in, in rent
0: a year hmm. um, if we really wanted to. So for those who are still surprised at why people aren't thinking of this, I think you mentioned in the report we have a home example that is little realised of the uh, Sydney Harbour Bridge.
2: Exactly, yes. Well, th- that happened um, uh, in the 1920s. It was like a 30-year battle to get it up. It's not always easy to get property owners to um, see the big-picture benefit, but, um, yeah, the, about... 25% of the Sydney Harbour was funded via um, uh, basically landowners recognising that they're going to have all of these benefits benefits of being able to get to work quicker. So, yep, um, we should pay something back for that. Another prominent example is here in Melbourne with the Melbourne Underground Rail Loop. So that was 40% funded out of land values. Okay. And they finished repaying it 21 years early. <laughs> That's not uh, known. And so here we are struggling, Andrew's government struggling, to fund the new, you know, Metro Rail Loop. And unfortunately, after all the fuss over Fisherman's Bend being rezoned and the billions of dollars there, well, Richard Wynne has gone and rezoned um, Parkville near Melbourne Uni to multi-density, delivering these billions and millions and billions of dollars to landowners and similar thing at Arden Street, North Melbourne.
0: Okay, we are running out of time just when this is getting really interesting. But you did mention superannuation in passing before. I think in your report you also said there's the flip side of this if we don't do it this way there's been some spectacular failures with our current funding methods can you very briefly give some examples of what you're talking about there
2: oh goodness poor old sydney they've had um two examples sydney cross town tunnel i think um a couple there's mainly been toll roads and then there was the clem jones tunnel up in um brisbane went broke yeah totally went broke based on user pays Meanwhile the property sharks made an absolute fortune buying and selling near the on off ramps of those new infrastructure developments. And that's what you see when you can understand this coded language and read the, the property section of various newspapers.
0: So Australia has, I think, two to three trillion in super looking for Somewhere to investment invest. opportunities. And and you say there's a way of doing it through this with that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So they can buy these securitized bonds yeah. and away we go.
1: All right. Now So we have to finish up. Thanks for speaking with us, Carl. It's been very interesting. We've been talking about how a mix between land value capture, user pays, and grants could greatly accelerate the infrastructure provision at least cost. And that's a very, very interesting thing that we would like to see play out with our high-speed rail report in Australia. So thanks for joining us. You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show. Find the show at... BZE.org.au, or any podcasting sites. And you can find us at on Twitter, at BZE. Um, and we'll speak with you next week.
0: All it's busy. not a product, it's a technology.
1: It's an education
2: challenge. A regenerative suspension.
1: There will be a growing demand for
2: industrial photovoltaics. Time hydro Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train
0: is in all our interests.
1: All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than
0: that. You've got something that's transformational.
1: Solar
2: window in a can.
0: Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. It's the fight of our time. Maybe the fight of all time.
2: And we should all be honoured to be a small part of it. Help ensure that our planet is protected for all future generations. Go to 350.org and join the fight today.